Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett flying solo today, recording right after the Red Sox just dropped two of three to Mookie Betts and the Dodgers. We'll get to Mookie in just a little bit, but seven hits over the weekend against the Red Sox. Just unbelievable, the weekend that Mookie Betts had. We will get to the Red Sox, but I do want to start with the Patriots because I was thinking about the landscape of the AFC and the pressure the quarterbacks are facing and where sort of Mac ranks in terms of the pressure meter, right? So it's pretty simple for Mac in terms of what he's facing. You're entering year three, and we've been through it with what happened last year with Matt Patricia getting the bulk of the blame for why Mac did not perform well, but also Mac struggled. And the reality is now going forward, Mac has this year to prove he's the franchise quarterback for the Patriots going forward. And I hope he does. And everything we hear coming out of training camp, everything you read about Mac Jones, it's all positive momentum right now. And the thing is, though, he's going to prove it on the field this year, right? Because the team's going to have to decide after this season whether or not to pick up his option, and whether or not he's their long-term guy. That's a lot of pressure, right? And so when you look at it, if he doesn't have a good year, you could be looking for a new quarterback after the season. I know everything seems great right now, and I'm optimistic in Mac this season, but that is just the reality. So it's pretty simple. Good year, you're at least getting your fifth-year option picked up, and you may even get an extension. Bad year, you're done with the Patriots in all likelihood, And you're not going to be a starting quarterback in the NFL next season if you play poorly this year with the Patriots. Nobody's guaranteeing Mac Jones a starting job if he gets benched or has a bad season here with the Patriots and the Patriots decide, 
hey, we don't want to pick up the fifth-year option. Nobody's going to be like, oh, we can't wait to get Mac Jones in the building and have him be the starting quarterback if that hypothetical presents itself, right? So that's a ton of pressure on Mac. So I want to run through the AFC and determine how many quarterbacks are actually facing more pressure than Mac this season. So let's start in the AFC West. Mahomes, I mean, the only pressure he really has is chasing down Brady, like trying to chase him down for the GOAT title, which we've been over. I don't think he's ever going to do it, but we had these conversations like last year about Josh Allen and Joe Burrow. Hey, could they possibly be narrowing the gap on Mahomes? Well, Mahomes just won the MVP and another Super Bowl. So as those guys were maybe creeping in Mahomes' territory, he decided, you know, I'm going to take a bigger lead on these guys. So Mac is certainly facing more pressure than Pat Mahomes. I think we can all agree on that one. Number two is Justin Herbert. So the Chargers have already sort of answered the question about Herbert, where they said, okay, we're giving you five years and $262 million to be our quarterback for the foreseeable future. They also went out and they got an offensive coordinator for him in Kellen Moore. So the Chargers made both a financial commitment to Herbert and they hired a new offensive coordinator for him. So if things go south this year with the Chargers, they're firing Brandon Staley. That's the guy that's going to get his walking papers, right? No way around it. Herbert is the one thing that is certain with the Chargers going forward. He is their quarterback. They made that commitment. Now, he's facing some pressure of sort of where he ranks in the league. He's mentioned with some of the great quarterbacks in the league based on his talent, but he hasn't really done much in terms of winning at a high level, winning playoff games, right? I mean, the Jacksonville Jaguars came back and beat him last year. So he's facing some pressure, but Mac is certainly facing more pressure than Herbert, right? Herbert has the new contract. They're building around him. Mac Jones, we don't know if he's definitely going to be the quarterback next year for the Patriots, right? So that brings us to our old friend, Jimmy Garoppolo. So Jimmy G has already made north of $120 million in his career. And he just got three years and $72 million to sign with the Raiders. And look, we all know what's probably going to happen with Jimmy. He's going to get injured at some point and miss time. So I don't think also that Jimmy's going to have a good year there. We'll see what it's like for him sort of out of the Kyle Shanahan offense, right? And I know he's got Josh McDaniels. I get all that. But that team is going to be in real trouble, the Raiders, based on their defense, right? So Jimmy's going to be in really obvious passing situations, and he could really be exposed next season. And if you look at that team on paper, they're the worst in that division, So if Jimmy fails, here's the thing, though. He has $22.5 million he's making in base salary this season. So Jimmy has it made. He's getting paid, and really, the expectations are sort of low, right? So clearly, Mac is facing more pressure than Jimmy G. We know who Jimmy G is as a quarterback. Jimmy's had, like, a nice career for a quarterback in the NFL. He's all set. Nobody thinks he's ever going to creep into, like, elite territory or anything along those lines. But the checks keep clearing for Jimmy Garoppolo. The guy's got a really nice life. Okay, That brings us to Russell Wilson. Wilson was horrible last season. 84.6 passer rating. That was 29th out of 41 qualifiers. He completed just 60.5% of his passes. That was 33rd of 41 qualifiers. And his replacement in Seattle was Geno Smith. Geno Smith had a 100.9 passer rating. That was 6th in the NFL. So 23 spots higher than Wilson and 16.3 points better. Geno completed 69.8% of his passes. That was first in the NFL. So 32 spots higher. And the percentage points, 9.3 percentage points higher. So his replacement, Geno Smith, was way better than him last year in Seattle. And the Broncos, remember, they gave up two firsts. They gave up two seconds. So that trade looked horrible after last season. And it was just weird, right? Like Russell Wilson had his own office. And now Sean Payton has basically taken it away. And now they bring in Sean Payton. 
as we mentioned, he takes away the office, but Sean Payton's known as one of the best offensive minds in the NFL. So if Russell Wilson doesn't work this year, he's probably done in Denver, right? Even with the financial commitment and whatnot. And it really is going to hurt his legacy if he can't get it done this year in Denver, right? This whole idea of, hey, let Russ cook. Remember that whole thing? And it was like, oh, if you just let Russell Wilson throw the ball more when he gets out of Seattle, he'll be good. Actually, no. What we found out is kind of the opposite is true. Seattle, like they were kind of protecting him from himself. And what it looks like now is he was a complete failure without the Seattle system. So Wilson has a ton riding on this season. So sure, he has the money and all that, but his legacy and his career are on the line this season. So I'm putting Russell Wilson in front of Mac on the pressure list because we're looking totally differently at Russell Wilson's career if he doesn't get it together in Denver, right? He was just, what we'll say is, hey, he was just a quarterback on a stack team in Seattle when he won the Super Bowl with all those guys, but when it was on him, couldn't get it done, wasn't as good as everybody thought he was, and he was exposed when he went to Denver. So I think there's a lot riding on that, right? He tried to spread his wings. It didn't work out. So I would actually put Russell Wilson in front of Mac Jones in terms of the pressure because that really does feel like, hey, what's your legacy going to be if you're Russell Wilson? And it feels like it's going to be determined by how this season starts out in Denver. All right, let's get to the South. Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville. He took the leap last year. He'll get an extension after next season. He has a chance, I believe, to get into that Allen Burrow neighborhood like that group after Mahomes. I really like the plus 1,600 for the MVP odds because... That division's not very good. Lawrence is going to put up really good numbers. And there's no doubt in terms of the pressure factor that Lawrence is the guy in Jacksonville for the foreseeable future. So yes, Mac's definitely facing more pressure than Trevor Lawrence. Like there's no chance that Lawrence isn't the starting quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars next season, right? So that brings us to the Colts. Anthony Richardson, rookie season. The Colts are all in trying to make it work with Richardson after drafting drafting him rather with that fourth overall selection. So Mac obviously is facing more pressure than a rookie in Richardson. The Titans, Ryan Tannehill, he's facing some pressure. Like, if things go south for the Titans, you would think they pivot to Will Levis and see what they have there. But with Tannehill, he's already got, what, like $170 million. And no one thinks Tannehill is going to be the guy in Tennessee for the next five to six years, right? They have drafted quarterbacks in back-to-back drafts. So Tannehill, at this point, he knows what the deal is. He'll probably be the Garoppolo of next year, like go out and sign with a different team on like a three-year deal or something along those lines. So Tannehill's made his money. He's had some success. He went to an ASC title game with Tennessee. We know where he is sort of in terms of the NFL landscape. He's never going to be an elite quarterback. He's not a great quarterback, but he's a serviceable quarterback in the league. He's fine. So Mac Jones facing more pressure than Ryan Tannehill, who's been playing in the league for a decade, right? Then you get to the Texans with C.J. Stroud, It looks like he's going to get that gig. Houston's one of the rare teams that hasn't named the starter yet, but I think they're the only team, actually, that hasn't named the starter. But same boat as Richardson, right? Rookie not facing nearly as much pressure as Mac Jones entering this season. The Steelers, Kenny Pickett. Year two, all you hear from Pittsburgh is that he had a great camp. And look, he was not great in his rookie season, like as good as Mac was, but you are feeling the momentum with Kenny Pickett, if you're a Steelers fan, like we were feeling it with Mac. Like entering year two, you were feeling good about Mac. The Steelers fans have that feeling right now. Where most of us thought Mac would have a really good second season, he obviously didn't. But I really feel like if Pickett, it would be a surprise if he doesn't have a good year two based on everything you hear coming out of there. He's got weapons around there as well. And as of right now, the Steelers are all in on Kenny Pickett. Just like the Patriots and the Patriots fan base, we were all in on Mac after year one, right? That's sort of where the Steelers are at right now. So Mac, yes, is facing more pressure than Pickett because 
Mac has to prove once again he's the Patriots guy. Pickett's on the other side of things right now where it's like he would have to prove he's not their guy, like convince us he's not the Steelers quarterback going forward. So Mac, more pressure than Pickett. That brings me to Deshaun Watson. So the reality is with Watson, he was horrible last season. Completed 58.2% of his passes. That was 38th of 41 qualifiers. He had a 79.1 passer rating. That was 34th. So with Watson, it's interesting, right? I don't think many people envision him just being flat out bad last season. I certainly didn't. I didn't think that Deshaun Watson was going to go to Cleveland and just be horrible. And the Browns really, remember, they received a ton of criticism for the trade because of the off the field issues naturally, right? But I felt like most people thought, hey, when he gets back, he's going to be a good player. No way that people actually believed, even if you thought, okay, maybe he's not going to be exactly as good as he was a couple of years ago. But nobody thought he'd be one of the worst quarterbacks in the league because that's what he was. And with Watson, remember, part of that, too, is he hadn't played since the 2020 season. He missed. He was on that list. He missed all of 2021. So maybe you chalk this up to him being rusty. But the reality is he was atrocious last year. So Watson, and this is crazy to think about, is he's just entering his 28-year-old season. He has to prove he's a starting quarterback in the NFL again. It's wild to think about just a few years ago, right? He was like in that next group after Mahomes and company and Brady at the time and Rodgers at the time. He was like in the next group, like he's an absolute stud. And now he's got a ton to prove. So he has a massive contract. And look, they gave him a ton in terms of that money. But he needs to prove he's a legitimate quarterback in the NFL again. This is a guy that was on the fast track to being one of the best players in the league. And now we're wondering, is he really a franchise quarterback? So I would put him in front of Mac because it really feels like Deshaun Watson. I know he's got the big contract, but it really does sort of feel like his career's on the line here, similar to Russell Wilson, where, hey, are we sure this guy's still a franchise-level quarterback? All right, that brings me to Lamar. He got the five-year, $260 million contract. They hired a new offensive coordinator in Todd Munkin. So they did a lot for him this offseason, even though it didn't start well with the trade stuff, et cetera. But he has weapons. Odell Beckham Jr., they drafted Zay Flowers in the first round. And they have one of the best tight ends in the NFL and Mark Andrews. So they're doing everything. They are all in on Lamar. And contractually, so like all in when I mean it, contractually, the players around him, the coaching staff, they did everything this offseason for Lamar Jackson. So really now there's some pressure on Lamar for he's a former MVP and he hasn't proven he can get it done in the postseason. Like he's got to sort of shake that narrative. But that's a different type of pressure than the pressure Max facing, right? We would love Mac to be facing the type of pressure that Lamar is, right? Mac's pressure is proving he's the guy. Lamar's pressure is proving he has a seat at the table as one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. So Mac is certainly facing more pressure than Lamar. Joe Burrow, this is an obvious one. Burrow is going to get a massive contract at some point. We know he's already played in the Super Bowl. He played in the AFC Championship game last year, back-to-back trips there. And he has a chance to be the number two guy in the league after Mahomes, really, if you think about it. And he's beaten that Chiefs team multiple times. So Burrow's pressure is trying to pass Mahomes. He's one of the legit guys that could actually have a better season than Mahomes and win a Super Bowl. There's not many guys that could do it. He lives in that neighborhood, right? And Mac is nowhere close to that neighborhood right now. So clearly Mac facing more pressure than Burrow. Okay, so that brings us to the division. Josh Allen, he's like Burrow where he already has the big contract too, $258 million he got. His pressure is, hey, can he finally get over the hump in the playoffs? So I do think that Allen, he's going to start to get criticized more nationally if they go out early in the playoffs because he was bad against the Bengals last year. They got blown out 27 to 10. The whole Stephon Diggs dynamic there is pretty awkward. And remember, this is last year was the favorite to win the Super Bowl. Burrow, 
has already played in the Super Bowl. Allen hasn't, right? So Burrow kind of jumped Allen in the line, it feels like, based on the accomplishments so far. So if they lose badly again and they lose to, say, Mahomes or Joe Burrow in the playoffs and they lose bad, I think he's going to start to feel that pressure nationally. But in terms of comparing him to Mac, it's a different type of pressure. Allen is going to be the Bills quarterback for the next decade, right? I mean, we know that. Okay, so let's get to Tua. Tua's played at a higher level than Mac. Last year, he was outstanding when he played. And I ran through some of the questions I had about Tua last week, if he can replicate what he did last season. But he was really good for the majority of last year. Tua's pressure is, can he stay healthy? That's the pressure he's facing, right? Obviously, the concussions, that was so scary last year, especially when they kept him in the game after he was concussed. But he's had other issues, too. It's not just the concussions. So he has to prove he can stay healthy. Bottom line, that's the thing with Tua. The Dolphins would love him to be their guy going forward long term. But those health issues are obviously a massive concern with him. And I do feel like there are expectations there, too. The Dolphins are getting a ton of love leading up to the season. Everyone loves Mike McDaniel. So if Tua isn't the guy that we saw last year, he's going to feel the heat. But overall, I would say he's facing less pressure than Mac Jones because of how he played last season. That was the guy that we saw on the field when he played. That was a franchise caliber quarterback. So Tua's already proven more in the NFL than Mac has. It's going to be about durability and whatnot for Tua, but I think that pressure is not as severe as the pressure that Mac faces entering the season. The last guy on the list is Aaron Rodgers, of course. He got out there for the final preseason game. Rodgers right now, the savior in New York, right? And think about the mess that that organization has recently had at the quarterback position. Sam Darnold, seeing go, Zach Wilson throwing four interceptions and three interceptions against the Patriots in a couple of games over the past few years. He's just been absolutely horrible. And you get this guy where you can stabilize the position, but he has to win now, right? Like Rodgers is facing legitimate pressure. The defense on that team is loaded. They're ready to win now. And he's 40. Like he's got to get it done soon. He's also, he's in a situation where he can add to his legacy. Yes, he has the four MVPs, but he won that Super Bowl way back in what? The 2010 season. And since then, remember, he went 15 and one following the Super Bowl year. He wins the MVP He gets upset by Eli Manning and the Giants in the playoffs. And then he hasn't got back over the hump since then. He got stomped by the 49ers after the 2012 season, lost again to the Niners in 2013. He lost an NFC title game to Seattle. He lost in that crazy game to the Cardinals in the playoffs. He lost to the Falcons in 2016 after the Patriots would beat the Falcons a couple of weeks later. He lost to San Francisco again in 2019, and he lost at home to Brady in 2020. Like, so he has not had a ton of success in the postseason since that initial Super Bowl. So Rodgers has all these individual accolades, but a lot of guys have one Super Bowl, right? But Mahomes has two, Elway has two, Montana has four, both Mannings have two, Aikman has three, Bradshaw has four, Brady has seven, right? So if Rodgers doesn't get that second, he cannot be considered for this group. We can talk all we want about the talent with Aaron Rodgers and that he's one of the most talented quarterbacks we've ever seen in the history of the NFL. That's all fair. But if you want to be in that elite class, right, in terms of the accomplishments, you have to put your team on your back and make one more run in the postseason, right? That's what makes you special at that position. And there's a reason that we don't mention a guy like Favre with that group. Favre won three straight MVPs, one of the most talented players in the history of the league from the quarterback position. But he doesn't have the second ring. Elway has the second ring. Montana has four rings, right? That second ring is missing from Favre. Favre, and look, he's a Hall of Famer, first ballot Hall of Famer, unbelievable player, but he would be regarded differently if he had an extra ring. All right, so Rodgers is facing massive pressure from a legacy perspective, but the pressure of the legacy is different than Max, right? Rodgers will go down as an all-time great quarterback. Like I said, he's going to the Hall of Fame no matter what, 
but he can only go up in New York, it feels like, right? Even if he sucks this season, it'll be like, oh, well, you know, he was 40. Like, he, he just got old. Like, we'll forget that chapter of his career. Like, I don't... So, like, in terms of his legacy, he can only increase it by making a run in the postseason. So, the downside, like, I don't really see much of a downside for Rodgers here. Like, okay, if he sucks, it's it's the same thing that I said about when Brady went to Tampa. It's like, all right, if Brady doesn't have a great year in Tampa, it's, he's old. Like, he... The hay's in the barn with him. Rodgers can elevate this thing and make him even better in terms of where he ranks at these other quarterbacks in NFL history. But if he doesn't, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer that won four MVPs. Mack, meanwhile, is trying to prove he'll be the starting quarterback for the foreseeable future with the Patriots. So I would put Mack, of course, ahead of him in terms of the pressure. So after going through this, I just ran through all the quarterbacks in the AFC. I only have two quarterbacks in the entire conference that are facing more pressure than Mack this season, Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. So I am fascinated to see how Mac plays this season, and he has control of the offense again. We've talked about that. He has the coaching. Can he prove he's worthy of being a long-term starter for the Patriots? The opportunity is there. So the question becomes, can Mac Jones capitalize and prove that he should be the Patriots quarterback going forward? I cannot wait for the season to get underway, and I know we're all feeling good right now about what we hear about Bill O'Brien and the offense and the RPOs and the play action and all of this. But at the end of the day, you also have to remember, like, Mac has to be good. Mac has to prove that he's a franchise-caliber quarterback in the NFL. Okay, so I did want to get to one other Patriots note. They did add some depth to their offensive line issues. So they pick up Tyrone Wheatley Jr. for Pierre Strong, of course, the running back, the now former Patriots running back. So we knew the offensive line had been an issue, and it needed to be addressed. Mike Reese had this quote from Adrian Clem, of course, the new offensive, or the new offensive line coach, he said this, quote, we haven't had the time to really have continuity. There have been a lot of moving pieces. Hopefully we'll settle down in the coming weeks and we'll get a better feel for it. So that's a work in progress. Okay, so, and we've seen it. It's a work in progress. Riley Reef got hurt in the final preseason game. Cole Strange has been dealing with injuries and he just, when you think about it, he's a guy that needs reps, right? He's a second year player. Trent Brown is always a concern as it pertains to consistency and you just think about what the Patriots didn't do in the offseason, right? Mike McGlinchey got the big deal with the Broncos. Orlando Brown got the big deal with the Bengals. And the Patriots, they didn't use high draft capital on a tackle either. So they didn't draft one high and they didn't sign a big one. So when you think about it, I'm happy that they made the move now because their plan entering the season in terms of the offensive line, you could see it wasn't going to work. I mean, we've seen it in preseason and it's been a bad camp for that group. And really for a lot of them, they haven't even been out there. So sure, you would like this. In terms of the problem, you would have liked it to be fixed earlier on in the offseason with somebody we could say, okay, hey, we're addressing this. We got our tackle situation set up for the next couple of years or so because we got McGlinch, something along those lines. But at least they did something because if they didn't do something before the season, it would have been a major problem. So we'll see with Wheatley. Like they have two good tackles there in Cleveland with Jack Conklin and Jedrick Wills. Like it wasn't like they didn't like, uh, they didn't like Wheatley. It just, there wasn't really opportunities for him there, right? And they had used some relatively high draft picks on tackles as well. So they're deep at that position. But Wheatley is really interesting. So he played tight end in college. And then he played for this thing called the Spring League, which I didn't even know existed. He played there in 2021. And he switched in 2021 from tight end to tackle. Like this just happened in 2021. This guy just started playing tackle. So then he signed with the Bears, he was waived. He went to the Raiders, he was waived. And then he signed with the Browns. He was on the practice squad last season. His dad, by the way, is Tyrone Wheatley, who played at the NFL. He was unbelievable running back at Michigan. I actually remember him. He was at um, 
he was an assistant when I was in college. He was an assistant coach. He was the running backs coach at Syracuse. And his kid, Tyrone Wheatley Jr., was like this big time recruit at that particular point in time. So I'm sure Bill loves that pedigree. And it should be noted, again, that the Browns offensive line has been really good over the past couple of years. And Bill Callahan is the line coach there who's regarded to be one of the best line coaches in the NFL. And if you look at that team last year, really good offensive line. And here's another interesting note on Wheatley. If you look at pro football focus as they graded out the preseason, he had the second best run block rate via pro football focus among tackles. He played both tackles, by the way. And also his pass block, not as good. But overall, he he was fourth in terms of tackles ranked during the preseason by pro football focus. So this is really going to be a question mark, right? In terms of like, we don't know. He's barely started playing the position, but all the signs are like good signs from what he did, who he's learning from, and Bill Callahan. So I'm hopeful they found something here, right? Because they really need it. It's just really concerning entering the the season here with this group, right? Because we've talked about it in terms of the offensive line and some of the issues this could present. Mac Jones, 12 dropbacks in his only preseason action. He's pressured four times, 33.3%, right? It's a small sample size. But even if you look at that offensive line that wasn't great last season, 29.2% for Mac in that first preseason action, that was up to 33.3. And I get it, injuries and all that different type of stuff, but this is sort of the trend that we've heard about throughout training camp and what we saw in the preseason games is the line right now is an issue. And you hope, like, you're putting all this work in, hiring Bill O'Brien, changing the offense, incorporating RPOs, incorporating play action. I just hope that it's not all derailed by the offensive line because clearly you have issues there, right? But it's worth reiterating, Mac really struggled against pressure last season. 5.1 yards per attempt, that was 31st of 40 qualifiers. Eight interceptions tied for the most in the NFL. And even if you look at sort of his turnover-worthy play rate, rate rather, which Pro Football Focus does, it was the six worst. So it wasn't like, oh, he just got unlucky with interceptions. No, he was putting the ball in bad positions. And if you look at it in terms of the rating, when pressured, 70.8, that was 38th of 40 qualifiers. So he's really bad under pressure last season. And so I hope that this isn't a problem during the season. Like Mac himself is going to be better against pressure as well. And hopefully Wheatley works out. But I, I just, I'm really cautious right now. Or the one thing that like you, you're excited about most of the stuff that's going on in training camp, right? Like Demario Douglas popping and... Mac Jones has control of the offense again. You bring in Zeke. You know that the defense, you love what you see from some of the guys defensively. Uche, another season, right, where he had the breakout year last year. We'll see if it's Barmore this year. Judon, is he going to be, like, in the defensive player of the year conversation, right? So all this stuff, like, everything seems good for the Patriots. Like, they're in a much better place than they were a year ago, and we feel good about it. But, man, you just wonder, going into the season, how concerning is this offensive line? It's really been an issue. So... The other thing, it feels like to me, and Callahan made this point on the pod as well a couple of weeks ago when we, when we had him on, it feels like they're planning on having a bad offensive line, right? Like they're already game planning for having a bad offensive line, which it appears they have. So if you go to the preseason action, Bailey Zappi's time to throw, this is via Pro Football Focus, was 2.49. Mac Jones' time to throw, and I get it, it's only 12 dropbacks and all that, was 2.29. Small sample size. But if you think about that, that 2.29, Tom Brady was the only quarterback south of 2.30 last year. Mack was at 2.29 in the preseason. And if you look at Zappi, that number of 2.49, only three quarterbacks were south of 2.50 last season. So (laughs) the game plan for both Mack and Zappi was simple. Get the ball out of their hands quickly, right? And look, some of this, 
is a good thing, right? Mac getting the ball out quickly. I want Mac to be playing fast. That's when he's at his best, when he's making quick decisions. You don't want him hanging on to the ball. But I do wonder, like, that time to throw situation there where that that is really low I, and it's it's a good, like I, I like it for Mac and all that like I said but it seems like that's more of a necessity than it is anything else right and you just wonder are you going to be able to hide those issues throughout the season the good news is the Dolphins they were 31st last season in pass block grade according to pro football focus only one team was worse than last year in pass block grade and if you look at ESPN's metric pass block win rate they were 24th so the bottom line is they had a really bad offensive line in Miami last year, and they still had one of the best offenses in the NFL with Tua getting the ball out quickly, as we illustrated earlier, or I should say last week, we talked about Tua getting the ball out quickly. So you can scheme that up a bit, right? But it just kind of tells you like you're already, so you can overcome a bad offensive line if you can get the ball out quickly, and that seems to be the Patriots' plan, but it just feels like you're already entering the season and you're scheming things up to try to prevent this issue. You haven't even played a game yet, so, so you're already game planning for, hey, the line is going to be bad. we got to protect our quarterback because the line isn't going to be able to protect them, so they're going to have to protect them more from a scheme perspective than their actual players, right? So it just, it is a little bit concerning. I am glad that they went out, and hey, if Wheatley works out, great. If not, who cares, right? I mean, you gave up Pierre Strong, where I don't mind this at all. You desperately needed a tackle. You don't need Strong, and Strong had been falling down the depth chart. Callahan had pointed out last week that he was behind Kevin Harris and J.J. Taylor getting reps in practice, so essentially last on the depth chart at that point in time. He was a fourth-round pick, and if Wheatley ends up working out, that's a huge piece of business that certainly worked out for you, right? And the other thing I'd say about Strong, he profiled as sort of that third-down back, but clearly he never took to that role. You look at the crazy number, like the 4.3740, which was in the 95th percentile, he was definitely an enticing player, but it just never manifested itself on the football field. You never saw that consistency and he never really got on the field. So, hey, look, to be able to get a guy that hopefully can work out for you for a guy that was providing no value in Pierre Strong, it's a nice, impressive move from the Patriots on paper. And even if Wheatley doesn't work out, which I was mentioning earlier, and I hope he does work out, I mean, I'm really interested to see this. I mean, it's kind of crazy. The guy just started playing tackle. And the good thing is, it's a tight end. He's super athletic. Like, if you go on Twitter, you can see some of the highlights of him. Like he he's he is like dangerous when he gets to the second level as a run blocker because he's going to be really athletic as a guy that played tight end. But even if he doesn't work out, it's like okay, you you gave up here strong. Who really cares, right? So I I like to move for the Patriots, but I am. It's the one thing that I'm really not excited about this season from a Patriots perspective. Is man, this offensive line is just going to be a conversation all season long. All right, a lot more to get into. I do have a couple Celtics notes I want to get to in just a little bit. But coming up next. Mookie Betts takes over Fenway Park. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. And I'm looking at a couple of Patriots futures. I like them to go over eight and a half wins. You can get that at good value at plus 220. And remember, this Patriots team won eight games last year, and they had two losses that come to mind. The Raiders game, where Jacoby Myers threw it away, literally, to Chandler Jones. And that Bengals game, the Patriots were going in to win that one. And unfortunately, Ramondre Stevenson fumbled. So I love that. Plus 220 for the Patriots to win over eight and a half games. I also like the Patriots to make the playoffs at plus 250. It's very good value there. 
Now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use, and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com Pike and kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restriction supply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. NFL Sunday ticket offer ends on September 18th, 2023. No refunds. Terms and embargoes apply. $100 off NFL Sunday ticket, not YouTube TV. YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV. Redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment. Commercial use excluded. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, and we just witnessed Mookie Betts hit safely seven times in three nights at Fenway Park, I should say, one night and two, I guess, well, late afternoon and then early afternoon today. But nonetheless, seven hits in three games, okay? (laughs) I mean, I want to get into some of the comments that have been made over the past few days from Mookie and some of what he has been saying about the contract situation and all that, but man... It just kind of sucked, especially today. Like, you had the three hits yesterday for Mookie, but at least the Red Sox won. But then this game today, where the Dodgers dominate, and Mookie's just doing everything, man. He's chasing down balls at right field. Prior to that, he's playing second base. It's like, man, this is legitimately one of the best four to five players in all of Major League Baseball. And that guy was on the Red Sox, and we're watching him dominate at Fenway Park against the Red Sox. Like, this should have never happened. Mookie Betts should be a member of this organization long-term. So, look, I found these comments interesting from Mookie when, remember, we talked about it with Cotillo on Thursday, where Mookie told the Globe, Pete Abraham, that he was never offered $300 million. So, naturally, Mookie set himself up to get asked more questions about it this week. So, when Mookie is at Fenway on Friday, naturally this comes back up because they're like, wait, were you really never offered $300 million? Because the reporting had been there. My buddy Lou Merloni reported at the time, Mookie was offered $300 million and I believe Lou's report. So anyway, what Mookie said about that when he was asked again, he said, I'll let Haim and those guys explain that or John Henry, whoever. I'll let them explain it. We probably just have to go ahead and leave it alone. But if someone wants to explain it, I would let them do that. Okay. Then he says, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus or anything of that nature. But at the beginning, I didn't want fans to think, and they still do, it is what it is, that I didn't want to be here. And I wanted to leave a couple of years before I actually got traded or whatever. So Mookie didn't want that perception out there that he didn't like Boston or that he didn't want to stay in Boston, right? And he also goes on to say, I'm wearing an LA jersey now. I've got two kids. I've got a production company. I've got a podcast. I've got a lot of things going on in my life. It's a little bit easier. I'm sure happy where I am. So he said it's a little bit easier with the Dodgers than it was with the Red Sox. All right, so a couple of things to this. Mookie says he's not throwing anybody under the bus. <laughs> he literally said, I'm Bloom with John Henry's name. I was like, I found that funny. But anyway, so the Red Sox, they're not going to talk about negotiations publicly. They just won't do it. Where I do think in this case, it would actually behoove them to just put it out there. We did offer Mookie $300 million. I think that would help them because right now, it's, just, it's not how they operate. I understand that, but... What happens is most people are just going to believe what Mookie's saying because the Red Sox reputation, right? And even though it was reported that he was offered $300 million, most people buy what Mookie's saying, even though, like I said, I don't buy what Mookie's saying. I believe in the reporting that he was offered $300 million, okay? So I mentioned before the season, or before the series, rather, I don't think that Mookie should have brought this up. It's, just, it's sort of unfair. And I love Mookie. I just told you. But I think Mookie 
was somewhat, and you could tell by that quote, he was somewhat self-conscious for whatever reason coming back here. I don't, I don't realize, like, I don't think he realized, like, how much people love him here, right? Like, everybody loves Mookie. Nobody was going to be mad at Mookie when he came back to Fenway. And I do feel like, for some reason, maybe he was just a little bit more self-conscious than he needed to be with the situation, right? But I just feel like bringing up the contract, it's sort of unnecessary because that became the whole story on Friday. And what he said... He said he's happy where he is. He's doing a podcast. It just tells me that this was a better situation for Mookie anyway, going to the Dodgers, right? His team has been better. They won a World Series. And he doesn't have to be in that pressure cooker of playing as a member of the Red Sox, right? Where some guys love it, right? Like Ortiz wanted to be out there every day, wanted to play at Fenway, right? And this is no indictment on Mookie. But just listening to what he says about LA and the lifestyle, it seems like he prefers playing in that type of environment where it's not life or death, right? It's not like playing for an SEC football team. That's kind of what it's like playing for the Red Sox, right? And just think about like Rafi, for example, who, by the way, good thing with Rafi, like the x-rays are negative on him, but we already have getting hit on the wrist. So hopefully he can play on Monday because clearly they need him in the lineup after they lose this game today. But anyway, so we've already had people complaining about his contract, saying they overpaid for Rafael Devers, right? People in the fan base think that, right? And Basically, it's like, well, did you really pay a DH $330 million? Because Rafi's looked like a DH this year the way that he's playing in the field, right? So, look, now Mookie would have never had that type of issue, right? Because as we saw, he's an elite defensive player. He's playing second, he's playing right. But let's just say Mookie was having a down couple of months. You know you're going to hear about it. And he's not going to hear about it if he slumps. Not that he's slumping anytime soon. The guy's on a 15-game hitting streak. But nonetheless, like, he's not... If he's... If he has a couple of bad weeks with the Dodgers, he's not going to hear about it. In Boston, that'll be the topic of conversation. We all know this, right? And think about David Price, who Mookie played with. And think about the shit that David Price took here, right? And look, he put, I'm not defending David Price, by the way. He put a lot of it on his own plate. The whole thing with Eckersley for an innocent, X said yuck because they showed Erod's pitching line in AAA when he was making a rehab outing. And he was all mad about that. Like David Price brought a lot on, like, saying he, he was dealing with allergies when he had a bad game. Like, Mookie wasn't going to do anything along those lines. But I'm just saying, like, think about David Price. He was making $217 million to play baseball for the Red Sox, and he was absolutely miserable. And Mookie would not have the same issues that David Price did, right? I'm not saying that, but, like, he's not going to go up and get mad at Eck. I guess Eck no longer with the team anyway. But I think he saw where this market... Even though he's not similar to David Price personality-wise, you can see like the market can wear on people. Playing here can wear down people. And I really don't believe, despite him saying that he thought he was always going to be here, I don't believe that Mookie wanted to be here long-term. Like if you injected him with truth serum, I don't think he wanted to be here long-term. Now, ultimately, and I know he says that, but I just don't buy it. Like Now, ultimately, he was not offered the deal that was close to $400 million that's where he and the team were at, like in terms of the gap was just wide, 300 to 400, right? Mookie wanted 400 at the time. The team was willing to offer 300 million. So if they put that $400 million in front of Mookie Betts, maybe he says yes, right? And I think Mookie, I truly believe that Mookie wanted to get to free agency. Maybe they could have offered him a deal where he had to say yes because it was so ridiculous in terms of the money. But remember, this whole thing where Mookie wanted to test the market, like that was a thing. He's a businessman. Ultimately, he signs the contract because there's a global pandemic. Like if there's not a global pandemic, I still believe that Mookie Betts goes to free agency. 
And the difference between sort of like the Mookie situation and the Xander situation, not comparing the players, because obviously one's one of the best in the game, and I'm kind of worried about Bogarts right now. But anyway, like Bogarts, we knew wanted to be here, right? He was basically crying in spring training before the season. He was almost in tears because he wanted a contract, but he couldn't sign the contract the Red Sox offered because it was just one additional year. That was it. So he couldn't, in his right mind, sign that. He wanted, like, he was almost begging for a contract and he couldn't get it. We never really had that type of experience where Mookie, where Mookie you knew was like super committed. Like, you knew that Bogarts wanted to finish his career. I never got that feeling with Mookie, right? So I think right now what he's saying is convenient because he's back here, right? I just, I don't really believe what he's saying in terms of the whole, the $300 million stuff that he was never offered that type of money and that he wanted to be here long term. It's just everything at the time would tell you that that's not true either because Mookie, he wanted to test free agency. Like that was a thing that he was excited to do as like a businessman, like I was telling you. But so I would say this, honestly, Mookie, he made out. He got $365 million and he lives in LA. He plays for a great franchise. And I know this may sound like a small thing, but he mentions the podcast. Do you think Mookie's doing a podcast if he's here? I really don't. I don't believe that he would be doing a podcast if he was in Boston because then you open yourself up to criticism, right? Like if Mookie, like I was mentioning earlier, like he goes on a two-week stretch where he's not hitting the ball or something along those lines, then if he's doing his podcast during that stretch, people are going to say, oh, he cares about his podcast more, right? You don't have those type of problems playing in Los Angeles, right? Now, to the other side of this, and this is where, like, and I, I told, I, when I chatted with Gatilla, I told you what I would have done. And I'm just I'm tr just trying to dissect this whole situation. I'm trying to be fair to both sides here. But I told you what I would have done. If I was John Henry and I had that type of money, I would have given it to Mookie Betts. I would have offered him the $400 million if that was my money. And obviously, it's John Henry's money. It's not my money. But if I was Heimblum, the front office, and if I was the ownership group, I would have said, this is one of the best players in the sport. This guy's incredibly entertaining. There's no way he should play for another franchise. And I would make him an offer he wouldn't refuse. But I do want to be honest about these comments that Mookie made where I don't really buy a lot of what he said this past week. Okay, now to the other side of this. The Sox, they could have gone, as I mentioned, to 365 or 400 million, but they stopped at that 300-ish, 310 was the report at the time, right? And that's always been my critique of this. I would have forced him to say no, because if you offer him that contract, right? If you offer him $400 million or even 365, 375, and he says no to that, well, then you know he doesn't want to be here, right? Like, definitively, he couldn't even make the argument that he's making now that he did want to be here long term. Like, if you pass on $375 million or $400 million, then you know that Mookie Betts doesn't want to be here and he wants to just get to free agency. So that's where I think they kind of screwed the whole thing up. But anyway, so here was the Red Sox. And this is interesting to me because Heim Bloom had an explanation about how they were able to sign Raphael Devers this offseason compared to the Mookie Betts situation. So this is what he said. At this time three years ago, Everybody knows it. We were forced with a similar choice. One year away from free agency with a superstar player and we didn't sign him and I wanted to explain why. It relates to where we're going. We didn't sign him and when you make those bets, they're big bets and those bets stay with me. Those bets, those bets you don't know. You guys are smart, but those bets are much better up front than on the back end. He's talking about all these contracts at the end. They're not good. I, that's baseball. All these contracts are bad at the end. Like... None of these contracts age well. But anyway, so that to me is like, that's not, not a great point. But all right, so Heim's whole point with this is you can't pay one guy 
a contract north of $300 million unless the foundation, the organization is strong, right? Because basically what he's saying is, if you're paying, in this case, Rafi, the rest of the organization has to be strong because you're not going to have multi $300 million players, right? So his idea is it means, okay, your farm system has to be strong so you can have cheap major league players to eventually go along with Rafi, which you're talking about the Jaron Durans, you're talking about the Tristan Casas of the world, those type of players that are cheap players right now. And Heim's point is that as an organization, they were not there when Mookie was entering the final year of his contract. That's the argument that he's sort of making. I'm just laying out what he's saying. So I understand Heim's overall point here. And this is from back when he was getting booed, Red Sox like winter weekend, whatever it's called. So I understand his overall point. It does make sense, but I just disagree when it comes to that specific example with Mookie Betts. Like I can understand where he's coming from, but I would also argue that having Mookie Betts takes care of a lot of other problems, right? So if you have Mookie on a long-term deal, you have a guarantee going forward with that player. So you know with Mookie, the first six, seven, eight years of that contract, I would say he's going to be a top five player in the sport. And so you have, if you have Mookie signed, talking about like other players around him and all this, you have your leadoff hitter and you have a great defensive player who we see can play multiple positions. So I would argue that signing Mookie long-term actually would, in fact, make your life easier building in your organization because you're penciling in one of the best players in the game in your lineup every day. So this whole idea of we weren't in a place to do it, I would argue to the contrary. If anything, it would make sense to get that guy locked in because you know that you have an MVP caliber player on your team every day and he can make up for some of the other issues you have, right? So the contract that ultimately got gave out or the contract that they ultimately gave out was to Rafi. And look, I wanted to keep Rafi long-term. You know that. I wanted to. I just wish they had done it sooner because you wouldn't be paying him $330 million, right? If you went to him two years ago, three years ago, when he was further away from becoming a free agent, you could have got a better deal done. But anyway, Rafi's contract, like to Heimblum's point about this, right? They're in a place now. I would argue that, and I don't even think this is like a hot take, but Rafi's contract is way more risky than Mookie's. We're already seeing it this year. I was just talking about it. We talked last week about how bad his defense is. He has the third most errors in Major League Baseball. So we're wondering, one year into the contract, if he can play third base long term. He's not even finished the first year of the contract. We're already asking the question, is he going to have to be a DH? So that's way more of a risk than Mookie Betts. You may have to make a choice of either, hey, the guy we're paying $300 million to, this may be your choice going forward. And hopefully, knock on wood, that Rafi can just get better defensively. I told you, I'm not going on a Rafi rant right now because it's just... Rafi's defense, it's not like a skill ability. It's he he's it's a concentration thing. But anyway, just getting back to my original point, the decision that the Red Sox might ultimately have to make is, hey, the guy that we're paying $330 million to, are we going to keep him in the field where he's a liability or are we going to be paying a DH $330 million? Like that's a question that this organization legitimately may have to have this offseason, right? And so if you just look at the two players, Mookie is a tremendous athlete that is in outstanding shape, right? Rafi's not that. He's a slugger, not exactly the most fit guy in the world, right? So you do wonder about that as he ages. With Mookie, you're not going to worry about that in terms of the wear and tear stuff because the guy, he keeps himself in phenomenal shape. So that's just where I disagree with Bloom, that they couldn't give that contract prior to 2020 and they could give it out now. In principle, I understand his argument, 
But in practice, it doesn't make sense when the guy in 2020 was Mookie and the guy this offseason was Rafael Devers, right? And like, what would have signed and like, if you signed Mookie long term, what would it have stopped you from doing, right? Like, okay, yeah, you wouldn't have Marcelo Meyer because in 2020, you probably wouldn't have been the fourth worst team in baseball, right? Like, okay, you wouldn't have Meyer. But I, I just disagree with the logic there from High Bloom's perspective. Mookie being signed wouldn't have made things more difficult. It would, in fact, have made things easier for the Red Sox organization. Okay, so I understand what he was trying to say over the winter, but it just doesn't make sense in practice when you actually think about the two specific players, right? And let's just think about it from this perspective. When you think about what not having Mookie did to this organization over the past, what, now we're he's been, tra- he's been there since 2020. It's crazy to think about, but anyway... Let's take the outfield defense. Now, Verdugo has had a really good season. He had a nice play again today. But Yoshida's bad. And the outfield defense, since Mookie Betts left the Red Sox, minus 45 defensive runs saved. That ranks 22nd out of 30 major league teams. So they're bad. Mookie Betts, since leaving the Red Sox, has 31 defensive runs saved in the outfield during that time. That is the third most in Major League Baseball among outfielders. And remember, he's played a lot of second base this year. So that number would even be higher if they weren't dealing with injuries and such. So one of the big problems that the Red Sox have had is outfield defense since Mookie left. Only eight teams have been worse than the Red Sox. And you traded a guy that is a top three defender by the numbers. He would fix that issue or at least play a vital role in it not being as bad. Right. I mean, you saw him chasing down balls today. It's ridiculous. Okay. Then you think about the leadoff thing that I mentioned. So Red Sox leadoff hitters since Mookie left, 254 average. And look, Verdugo was on a hot streak at four consecutive home runs, but this is over since 2020, right? So if you look at it, since Mookie left, the Red Sox leadoff hitters are hitting 254, that's 19th, 321 on base percentage, that's 23rd, 415 slug, that's 15th, 736 OPS, that's 17th, 21.2% strikeout rate, 22nd, 54 home runs, 21st. So in most categories, they're in the bottom third. They're nowhere in the top half, right? When you think about this. Mookie, since he left, he has the most plate appearances in the leadoff spot in all of Major League Baseball since he left the Red Sox. And his numbers, 285 average, which is 10th, 372 on base percentage, which is 7th, 551 slug, which is 1st, 923 OPS, which is 1st, 15.7% 15.7% strikeout rate, which is really good. That's 10th. 103 home runs. That is first by 22 bombs. So <laughs> literally the best leadoff hitter in baseball since he left. Okay. You are bottom third in most categories. Your outfield defense ranks 22nd since Mookie left. Your leadoff hitters, or I should say, so your outfield defense is ranked 22nd. Your leadoff hitters are in the lower third. So this idea that you couldn't build with them because of the contract and you had to get the rest of the organization up to that level. I just, I can't understand the logic. If anything, not having this contract that Mookie Betts has with the Dodgers, 365, whatever it is, not having that contract, right, has actually hurt the organization more than it would have, like, it's hurt the team that he's gone. It hurt the team because a leadoff hitter and outfield defense is two of the things that this team has been missing over the past couple of years. Mookie is that guy. Like that guy was literally on the team and he could have made up for a lot of the issues that you had, right? So, and look, who knows? Like like I, I was going through earlier, the stuff that Mookie said and all that, but it's just, it's crazy to think about. Like, so Mookie right now, he's at 7.1 wins above replacement on fan graphs. That's first among position players, okay? 
Obviously, Otani hasn't beaten Total War because of the pitching aspect. And unfortunately, Otani's dealing with the elbow issue. But if you look at Mookie, he may win the MVP now. Again, if you look at the numbers, like he's, you could argue he's having a better season. I know he had 346 that year. But if you look at Mookie's numbers, he's going up against Acuna right now for the NL MVP. It felt like Acuna was going to run away with this thing, but Mookie is creeping on him. In terms of the wins above replacement, Mookie obviously has a lead there, as I outlined. Acuna's at 6.3 compared to the 7.1. Mookie has more home runs, 35 after the one he hit today, and Acuna has 28. Entering play today, Mookie had a 10-10 OPS, and Acuna had a 982. He's literally, if you buy the numbers, by war, Mookie Betts is the second most valuable player in Major League Baseball. By the numbers, by war, he is the second most valuable player in Major League Baseball. And the idea that you couldn't pay him because you weren't ready as an organization, I just, I can't understand the logic behind that one. It's just a tough weekend, man. I will say this, like when he first came up on Friday night, Apple TV is going to pick it up. Like I, I don't know how, it, like the volume was so low on that because of how they showed it. Like the crowd was electric and the volume came through the screen like it wasn't great. But anyway... I just, watching him play this weekend, man, I just missed that. Like, the guy is so incredible. And I'm not going to pretend like I watch every Dodgers game at 10 p.m., but he's such an unbelievable player to watch. And that's like, as sports fans, that's what we ask for. We want to watch these guys that are incredibly entertaining. Mookie Betts was that. And we'll never see him play in a Red Sox uniform again. It's just, man, this weekend was more sad than anything else. Just seeing him on the other side kind of sucked. All right. So, by the way, I do want to mention James Paxson quickly here because... A back-to-back rough outings for him, just eight and a third combined innings in his last two, four earned against the Dodgers on Saturday, and six earned against the Astros last week. He also has eight walks in his last two, including five on Saturday, just no command in that game. So the Muncie home run, that was a bad four-seamer down in the middle of the zone. That's exactly where lefty wants that pitch, where it's just down and he can launch that thing, right? And if you look at the numbers in that game, he sat at 93.8 miles per hour with the heater. That's at 95.3 for the season. So he's down velocity-wise. So here's the problem. He throws that pitch, and we've alluded to this before, 55.6% of the time. If you look at it, since he made his debut this season on the 12th of May, that 55.6%, that's the eighth highest rate among starters. So he is heavily reliable, or he relies on that thing a ton in terms of the fastball, right? And if you look at the last two games now, as I told you, the velocity was down on Saturday. Look at his last two games with the heater. Opponents are 11 of 32. So that's 344 with a 625 slugging percentage and two bombs, including, of course, the Muncie one. So that pitch is getting absolutely crushed. And the other concerning thing about this is we mentioned the command, the velocity being down. He has six walks on fastballs. Right? Like, so the at bat ending in a fastball, six walks. That's 15%. I told you eight walks total, but six with the fastball. Like, you're throwing a fastball and you're walking a guy, right? No qualified starter has a walk rate north of 15% this season. Paxson, in his last two games with his fastball, is at 15%, right? This is a scary development, okay? And if you just think about it, those eight walks, the last two games, that's 12.5%. Blake Snell's the only guy north of 12% this season. And Paxson's been at 12 and a half. So this is a problem. And if you look at Paxton, he hasn't thrown more than 21 innings since 2019 because he's been dealing with all these injuries. We're talking about four seasons ago. So I think right now what we're seeing is the guy is fried. The velocity, by the way, is an indicator of that. The velocity being down on the fastball tells you this guy is tired right now. So ideally what the Red Sox would like to do if they were in a position to do it is skip him. The problem is they don't really have that luxury right now is, and look, 
it's going to be a long shot to try to get in the playoffs, but they don't really have the ability to do it right now. Like you just like to sit them down, give them like two weeks, let them recover. You can't do that right now, but it is a concerning development that it does look like this guy that was so reliable for the majority of the season for you. It looks like he's just gassed. All right. Another thing I want to mention is Chris Murphy can't do it anymore. Cannot watch this guy. And look, hopefully what happened, what transpired at Fenway on Sunday wins you a game against the Astros. That's the only hope is that he ate up innings, right? Because this guy, he has been horrible. Of course, he gave up the home run to Mookie. Three earned in. What do you, what do you end up giving up in this one? He's in a situation where over his last 14 and a third after today, he's given up 17 in the month of August. 17 earned in 14 and a third. I mean, that's difficult to do. And if you just look at the numbers entering play on Sunday, 10 and a third, 958 ERA, which is going way up. That was 189th of 197 qualifiers. He was barreled up four times, tied for the second most. And here's the thing about him. Like, you score two to make it 4-2 after the home run from Casas to get you back up in the game. You want to put up zeros. He doesn't do it. He gives up a single to Rosario on a four-seamer, seven pitch at bat where he couldn't put him away. And then Oatman singles on a bad curveball, makes it 5-2 Dodgers. So right after your team sort of got back in the game, you go out there and you give it up again. So it's just, like, I understand, like, They've had to rely on a lot of different relievers. So at times, and it's you're in a losing situation in that particular moment of the game, like you're just going to have to hope he works out. But man, really difficult watching this guy pitch. He doesn't miss bats either. During this recent stretch, 8.7% swinging strike rate. That's 163rd out of 197 relievers in August. And the called strike plus whiff rate, 23.5%. That, that's 173rd out of 197. So it's tough to live when you can't miss bats. It's just a really difficult proposition. And we've seen this now for a long stretch with Chris Murphy. I don't know why I'm singling out Chris Murphy. It's just I'm watching the game. It's just like, oh my God, you know he's going to give it up. Every time that guy's on the mound, you know he's going to give it up. It's just so annoying watching that guy pitch because he was like a revelation earlier this season, right? Like was not great in AAA. He comes up, he's throwing the ball well. And now the complete opposite. He's turned into a pumpkin. All right, I do want to get to the Celtics next. I didn't get a chance to talk about some of the news-related items with them earlier this week, so I want to do that next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. A lot of Red Sox, a lot of Patriots lately. So I didn't get to talk about the Celtics earlier this week because they're bringing in some guys trying to fill out this roster, right, where they're really thin on the wing line. And one of the guys they were bringing in, Shams is the first that had this, they brought in TJ Warren. Now, Warren played in just 42 games last season between Phoenix and Brooklyn. He didn't play at all all in 2021-2022 season because of foot issues, and he played in just four games the year before that. So this is obviously a big health thing, and Phoenix not bringing him back tells you that they don't trust the health of the player either, right? So, But if you look back to 1920, he shot 40.3% on threes. Remember, he made that all-bubble team. He was in the 80th percentile shooting off screens at 53.1%. He averaged 19.8 per game that season. He shot 73% at the rim, which via cleaning the glass, that's in the 92nd percentile. 47% on all mid-rangers, that's in the 92nd percentile. So when I look at TJ Warren, and look, obviously it's a big medical question with him, 
But I think this is the type of guy that I would take a shot on where there's a high upside, right? Where he's a guy that can fill it up. Like he can go out there and give you 25, 30 points on a random night. I'm not saying he's going to do that consistently and he's not going to be playing a ton of minutes. And I totally get all that. But if I'm signing a guy, like I'm not with him, I'm not so much worried about the defense, right? You have enough good defenders on this team. It's just, hey, every once in a while, you need something to go out there and get you a bucket, especially on maybe a night that Jalen's not playing or Jason Tatum's not playing. So that's the type of player that I would actually be targeting is a guy like TJ Warren, even though I know it's a risk from a health perspective. And they already got O'Shea Brissett, who's sort of like an athletic guy that can defend a little bit. One of the other guys they were looking at is Lamar Stevens, where if you look at the numbers, he's just been a horrible three-point shooter. I mean, it's not like a large volume, but he's a 28.1% three-point shooter. The defense in Cleveland last year, I know he's profiled as like this really good defender. They were 2.9 points per 100 worse with him on the court. That's via cleaning the glass. He was good in isolation situations, not a lot of possessions, but he was good. But he played just nine minutes in the Knicks series. They needed wings badly, the Cavaliers, and he's not with the team anymore. So when I look at the, like, these are two of the guys they brought in. I prefer Warren because, okay, I just rather play Jordan Walsh in that spot than Lamar Stevens. Like, TJ Warren brings something different, which is sort of scoring off the bench. You're not going to get that from... Lamar Stevens. So for me, it would be a hard pass on Stevens, and I would try to get TJ Warren. Now, if you look at him and you figure out like, okay, yeah, it's just not going to hold up from a health perspective, that's fine. But it's a risk I'm willing to take if they feel like, hey, he can get through a season. I would do it because it's a guy that can at least score. All right, I also wanted to get to this because if you haven't noticed, Jason Tatum has been working out with Paul Pierce. He recently worked out with Jalen. And by the way, side note on the Jalen thing, he's playing in the big three. I don't have an issue with it. I know, like, it, it's weird that he's playing in the big three, but I don't know. Like, these guys are all playing in pickup games anyway. I don't care that he's playing in the big three. That's actually more organized than a normal pickup game, so I don't have an issue with that whatsoever. But if you look at Tatum, he's been tweeting out videos of him working out. He's, like, deadlifting 495 pounds. So I love the way that he's attacking the offseason, right? Working with peers, lifting, and all this different type of stuff. It's great. Clearly, he's motivated to be an even better player than he was last year. I love all that. But my one concern... I really don't know. And look, he's working with professionals and all that. I don't know how much bigger Tatum needs to get. Tatum was eighth in free throw attempts last year at 8.4. So he's strong enough now to get to the free throw line consistently. His finishing at the rim was much better last year. He went from the 69th percentile via cleaning the glass up to the 73rd percentile. He was 318 of 454, which was 70% the year prior. He was at 68.2%. He also went from 28% of his shots at the rim up to 33% of his shots at the rim. So he was attacking the basket more. So his finishing was better and he got to the free throw line more. Like these are all good things because his body's developed, he's bigger, he's stronger and all that. But my concern with Tatum is the three-point shooting, okay? So obviously the attempts have been tougher the past couple of years because he's the main guy. But if you look at the past four seasons, Tatum, 40.3% on threes on 5.5 attempts. The next year, 38.6% on threes on 6.5 attempts. Okay, he's taking more. It's going to go down a little bit. Then the following season, 35.3% on 6.3. This past season, 35% on 6.6 attempts. Okay, so every season, it's going down, right? Now, the drop-off isn't as big from last year to this year, but it's bad. Like, under 36%, you're below league average. So I just look at Tatum, every season, he's visibly getting bigger and stronger. And I just wonder if now you want to keep putting weight on every offseason, right? Who, like, this is a real question. Like, this is, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. Who are the real jack shooters in the NBA, right? So, like, think about guys throughout the history of the league. 
Dwayne Wade was jacked, but he was never really relying on his three-point shot, right? Same thing with LeBron, never really relying on his three-point shot. He's what, like 34.5%, I believe, for his career. LeBron and Wade could get to the cup at will. They overpowered guys. That's how they did their business, right? That's how they scored. Same with a guy like Giannis. Now, it's great that Tatum has added this to his game, but I also think that Tatum has a much, obviously, when we're talking about Giannis, but he is a more natural shooter. I'm, I'm not comparing the players, okay? So don't get me wrong on this, but he's a more natural shooter than Giannis, than LeBron, and than Dwayne Wade. So I want the three-point shot to be a consistent part of his game because I feel like it can be. But if you look at the great shooters, none of them are jacked. Curry, Clay, Murray, Kevin Durant, right? Desmond Bain, that's a guy that is jacked and a good shooter. Like, that's the one example. But he was like that his whole life. Like, he was like that at college. Go back and look at him at uh, TCU. The guy's absolutely jacked out of his mind. But if you look at Durant, the like other than Durant, like, the one guy, like, Durant's obviously not jacked. He's skinny. The one guy would be, like, Kawhi. But it's pretty much... He was putting on weight consistently throughout his career, but he also remade his shot in San Antonio. Like when he came out of the collegiate level, he didn't have a shot. So he remade his shot. Tatum is adding mass every offseason. I just wonder if that's fucking up your shot, right? Where every year you're getting bigger and stronger. Can you stay consistent with your jump shot? I, I don't want him to like lose weight and look like Durant, but it's just a thought. Like if you think about it, Butler and Giannis, they aren't good shooters. Like those guys are jacked up. They're not good shooters. I just feel like Tatum is too good of a shooter to be self of league average. And I wonder if it's the body composition makeup. Like, I wonder if that's the problem. Is is he getting too big? Like, when you're constantly adding on muscle and you want to be consistent as a shooter, I just wonder if that's the best thing for Jason Tatum to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Like Like I said, I'm just thinking out loud here, and I love the fact that he's been working out and he's doing all this stuff to try to get better next season. I love all that stuff. I just wonder if this is the best way to go about improving your game, right? And think about the great shooters even in NBA history, not even like right now. Dirk, not jacked. Ray Allen, like fit, but not jacked. Reggie Miller, certainly not jacked. Larry Bird, certainly not jacked, right? So none of these guys like that have been great shooters, and I'm not saying that Tatum is on these guys' level, but I do think that he should be a lot better than south of league average from three-point territory. He has too nice of a shot, and he's been that way his entire career, going back to high school and the collegiate days, where he has been a really good shooter. And now all of a sudden over the past couple of years, he's not a great three-point shooter. And look, I know this sounds like I'm nitpicking and I may be crazy for thinking this way anyway, but I just feel like Tatum, he does so many things well. He's a great defender. Now the playmaking still needs to take another step forward, but his playmaking has improved. He gets to the free throw line more like all these things he does great. And he never says anything wrong. He's always saying the right stuff. You love the guy. I just, I'm really wondering like if, Putting on all this muscle is affecting him in terms of his shot. You may say, Brian, you're freaking crazy for saying that, but I'm standing by the take. Like, I, I don't think he should be putting on much more muscle. Like, have you seen him? He's jacked up and he's finishing through contact. So I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy for thinking that way, but that's how I feel. I, I don't think he should be getting so jacked. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 